By October 1470, Yorkist England was effectively dead. Edward IV, with his brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, brother-in-law, Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, and his old friend, William Lord Hastings, was in Flanders under the protection of his erstwhile ally, Duke Charles of Burgundy, also his brother-in-law. Edward's queen, Elizabeth Woodville, retreated with her daughters to sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, where, in November, she finally gave Edward a son, not that it seemed to matter quite as much by then. Edward's journey to Flanders had been far from straightforward, and a warm reception there was by no means guaranteed. In fact, Duke Charles would not see him at first, because Edward's presence created a problem for him. Just as Louis XI of France wanted England as an ally against Burgundy, Charles of Burgundy wanted England as an ally against France. While Edward IV was king, Charles had that alliance, but now he needed an alliance with the new English government, Warwick's Lancastrian regime. You may think that was rather disloyal of Charles, but consider what was best for his country. It would be very hard for Burgundy to face an alliance of France and England and survive. Fortunately for Edward, however, Warwick was not interested in an alliance with Burgundy because he was already heavily committed to France. It was no coincidence that Charles first met Edward in December 1470, shortly after Louis XI made his warlike intentions towards Burgundy crystal clear. Charles had no choice now but to support Edward, and with the backing of Charles, Edward was able to acquire some ships to fit out an invasion fleet. Between January and March 1471, Edward continued to make preparations to return to England, while Warwick used his fleet to make punitive attacks on Edward's allies. Not only Burgundy, but also the Duchy of Brittany, which, like Burgundy, lived under the shadow of superior French power. Breton ships played an important role in distracting the English fleet while Edward prepared to launch his invasion force. Where was the French fleet? Well, they were idly at anchor, waiting to escort Queen Margaret and her son Prince Edward back to England. Yes, she was still in France, allowing her deep mistrust of Warwick to turn into a festering sore. This delay was critical because the one really solid advantage the Lancastrians possessed was a male heir more or less old enough to take over from Henry VI. As soon as she took her son to England, the more stable the new regime would be. Yet, Margaret remained in France, dithering, still unwilling to believe that Warwick's defection to her cause was genuine. Meanwhile, Warwick made preparations in case Edward evaded his fleet and landed in England. But the measures he took revealed a thick seam of distrust towards even some of his most powerful allies. This is demonstrated by the fact that only a small handful of men were given commissions of array, in other words, the legal authority to raise troops. 
Among the trusted few were his son-in-law, the Duke of Clarence, his brother, John Neville, Jasper Tudor, and John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. Hardly a broad base of support. Usually, commissions would be delegated to other local magnates, such as Lord Stanley and the Earl of Shrewsbury, both of whom had supported Warwick's coup. But clearly, Warwick was circling the wagons around several chosen men, and any others who might conceivably support Edward were closely watched or imprisoned, such as John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk. The Milanese ambassador famously observed about Edward's situation. It is a difficult matter to go out by the door and then try to come in by the windows. But on the 11th of March 1471, Edward IV attempted to do just that, when he set sail from Burgundy with 36 ships and close to 2,000 men, including many mercenaries. It was a force which could not be ignored. But Warwick was prepared. As so often in life, and certainly in this conflict, the weather now interfered with the well-laid plans of men. Not for the last time, either. Edward's fleet was hit by a savage storm in the North Sea, which dispersed his ships, leaving him more or less on his own. Nevertheless, Edward landed on England's northeast coast at Ravenspur on the Humber estuary. Ravenspur had been ravaged by the sea for generations, and not long after this period it disappeared under the waves entirely. Several of Edward's other ships managed to land elsewhere, and their complements made every effort to join him. In the end, he probably had about 500 men, certainly not enough to retake a kingdom. There was an ironic precedent for Edward to copy, though. Ravenspur was where Henry Bolingbroke, later to be crowned Henry IV, the first Lancastrian king, had landed in 1399. Edward, like Bolingbroke before him, had only a few men, and thus, copying Bolingbroke, he decided to put word out that he had returned to England only to claim his father's dukedom, in this case York. Edward then headed, with his small force, for the city of York. Several men warned him that he would not be welcomed there. But Edward never lacked confidence in his own abilities and pressed on regardless. It was a huge gamble, and his bid to regain power could have ended there, with him trapped in the city with only a handful of men. But Edward entered York, professing publicly not only his loyalty to Henry VI, but also to the young Prince of Wales, still, incidentally, loitering in France. Soon the old Edwardian charm offensive won people over sufficiently for Edward to receive a knight's hospitality. His reception in York added substance to his claim that he only wanted his dukedom. And when he left York again and headed south, he posed an awkward question to those who considered opposing him. Two men in the north could have stopped Edward in his tracks, but neither did, possibly because they were rivals for power in that region. Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, perhaps recalling that it was Edward who restored him against the odds to his earldom, did nothing, and thus no Percy hand 
would be raised against him. But what about the other power in the north, Warwick's own trusted brother, John Neville, Marquess of Montague? Why did he not stop Edward? The problem for Montague was that since no one else had yet opposed Edward, it made it difficult for him to rally support for such a move. It's bizarre in a way, because it's not as if Edward was especially popular in the North. He wasn't at all. In fact, few men in the North had rallied to his cause since he landed, far fewer than Edward hoped. But who would go against him if Northumberland had not? Thus, Northumberland's initial inactivity was vital to Edward's survival. When Edward moved further south into the Midlands, a confusing game of cat and mouse began, with the fate of the kingdom at stake. At Nottingham, he was joined for the first time by a substantial force of several hundred men. But not far away in Newark, the Earl of Oxford and the Duke of Exeter had a much larger Lancastrian force at their disposal. Now you see, this is what I like about Edward IV. Did he scurry away in the opposite direction? No. He made straight for the enemy, and his decisive action threw them into panic. Simply by marching towards the superior force, Edward caused it to disintegrate. By the 25th of March, 1471, he had crossed the River Trent and arrived at Leicester, where he finally received substantial reinforcements, 3,000 men raised by Lord Hastings. These were dangerous times for nobles and gentry in the Midlands, because both sides were writing letters to them, calling upon their support. Whatever they decided to do, they couldn't really win. By the 27th of March, Warwick's main army of perhaps 6,000 men could have gone out to take Edward's smaller force head-on. But, unusually for Warwick, he hesitated and instead withdrew to Coventry to await the arrival of his allies, the Duke of Clarence, the Marquis of Montague, Earl of Oxford and Duke of Exeter. Warwick's course of action was sensible, because such a combined force would be able to annihilate Edward. But in war, sensible actions do not always bring victory, and Edward, still as yet unopposed, advanced his own army to the nearby town of Warwick. So there we have it. Edward faced a force much larger than his own, and thus he faced imminent destruction. But the thing we always know about the Wars of the Roses, possibly the only thing we know for certain, is that there was always another curveball coming, and the next one came on the 3rd of April, 1471. Warwick's hesitation had led some men to question whether he had the nerve for this fight. And one of those was the Duke of Clarence, who decided to switch sides and rejoin his brother. The brothers met and were reconciled at once. This, though, was clearly not the work of a few minutes. Edward's whole family had been working on detaching his brother from Warwick for some time. Their mother, Cecily Neville, his sisters, his brother, Richard. When you think about it, Clarence had little reason to support Warwick, because he no longer had any chance of being king in the new regime. Whereas with Edward, who had only an infant son, 
there was still a much bigger role available. As the spare thumb of Warwick's regime, Clarence was even more worried about his future than Warwick himself. Perhaps then the Earl should have foreseen it, but Clarence's sudden defection to Edward, taking all his adherents with him, meant that Edward gained up to 4,000 men, which changed the military balance between the two sides completely. And at Warwick, Edward set aside his ruse and declared that he was king again. With hindsight, of course, the subterfuge seems pretty hard to believe, but at the time it created enough confusion to sow doubts about his intentions and thus paralyse his enemies. So, by early April 1471, after a few weeks of confusion, the dust had finally settled and two large armies faced each other, Edwards at Warwick and Warwick's in Coventry. Since neither was able to overthrow the other, they were locked in a stalemate.